Well, a warm welcome to you all this morning. Uh, thank you, Peter, for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, so yes, my name is Phil, and uh, I'm very happy to be here with my family, um, and our friend Courtney as well, uh, who's visiting with us. And uh, I, I was going to preach from Psalm 73, but I feel like the fiery furnace would be a good sort of alternative text for this morning, maybe. No, I'm, I'm going to stick with Psalm 73 with what I prepared. Um, I saw something uh, recently on social media that said, um, if, you're, if you're attending church through the live stream and through your TV screen, it's kind of like watching the holiday fire you know, on the TV. It's nice to look at, but if you want to feel the warmth, you've got to come in person. But if you came here for the warmth this morning, you might be a little bit disappointed. But you know what? There's warmth in the brotherly and sisterly affection that we have for one another. And there's warmth in the love of Christ. So, so anyways, I'm really happy to be here. Um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. So if you have your pew Bibles, it's uh, page 538. And I invite you to go there. We're going to basically walk through the whole psalm together. And I trust it will be edifying and encouraging. And I'm, uh, I'm, really, I'm really glad to be here, so thank you for having me. Let's, let's commit our time to the Lord and uh, ask for His blessing. Heavenly Father, we just ask You to come and, and to help us. Lord, for me, help me to speak Your Word and to preach it in a way that's pleasing to You and edifying to your children here. And Lord, for the hearers, help them to listen with open hearts to what you would have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, everyone seems to be talking about elites. There's growing discontentment in our world. There's populist movements of upset people gaining steam on every side of the political aisle. In the face of increasing government power and intrusive policies of these mammoth, unaccountable tech companies that track and addict us and manipulate us, financial criminals that get away scot-free or powerful billionaires that pour mountains of cash into advancing their own radical agendas, to pharmaceutical giants that regularly lie and defraud as part of their business model. It's no wonder that normal folks can feel helpless and powerless in our day. And those feelings can give rise to envy and anger. What do we do when those who ignore God and defy Him seem to soar in wealth and prominence while we struggle just to get by? Well, in this psalm, we have, we have a picture of, of that. Asaph, who wrote this psalm, was a worship leader in Israel. And he struggled. He struggled mightily when he saw how the wicked prospered and how he struggled. Now, Asaph's particular struggle was with envy. But his experience from falling into this, being trapped by the sin, getting to a dark place... And then God bringing around a dawning light to him. And then finally a deeper appreciation of God himself. This is the normative pattern for every one of us who walks the Christian life. 
and for all Christians who have walked in the past. This is part of the sanctification process. And so whether you struggle with envy or as some other sin, I trust this psalm has something precious to teach us. So we're going to look at it in three sections. Verses 1 to 14 will be the downward spiral to the darkest place. Secondly, verses 15 to 22, we will see the dawning light. And lastly, verses 23 to 28, the apex of the psalm, desiring and delighting in God alone. So let's begin, shall we, with verse 1, as we look at Asaph's downward spiral. So verse 1 starts with a very pious and and godly sounding phrase. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That sounds good. That's a good start. But immediately after, we find Asaph struggling. And this is often the way it works in the Psalms. The, The first verse is like, everything is fine, and then I get into trouble. And so... Asaph is saying, truly God is good to Israel, but soon we'll see that he's questioning this very point. He's not entirely sure. Is God good to those who call on his name? Is he? To use today's language, we might say that this first portion of the psalm, till verse 14, shows Asaph in sort of the early stages of deconstruction. He's struggling with his faith. He has questions. He has struggles. Something's not working. The downward progression really begins in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, it takes, I think it'd be helpful for us to just pause here and learn a little bit more about Asaph. Who is Asaph? Well, we learn elsewhere in Scripture that he was a Levite of the priestly line, who was appointed to serve before the ark in musical worship. So he was a worship leader, like we had this morning. And his job was to play the bronze cymbal. I guess drums, we could say. Um, When the ark is brought into Jerusalem, it says in 1 Chronicles 16.4, speaking of David, Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it says, and Asaph was the chief. So Asaph is like the chief worship leader at this critical moment in Israel's history. And so that's one of the most visible roles of spiritual leadership in the entire nation. So when people come to gather um, regularly at the festivals at the temple, Asaph is there, front and center, leading God's people into his presence. He's someone that people look up to. This is going to play an important role as we work our way through the psalm. So it's big time responsibility. And in light of that, it's quite remarkable how open and transparent he is about his own struggles in this psalm. His profound struggle with sin. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had nearly slipped. This this phrase reminds me of the opening line of what many consider to be the greatest poem ever written, Dante's Divine Comedy. It, It opens like this. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wilderness, for I had wandered. 
from the straight and true. Now, thankfully, that's all of the epic poetry I'll be reciting for you this morning, but it's a remarkable beginning to a remarkable piece of literature. And isn't that the way it is? We don't notice ourselves starting to slip. We become conscious that we have slipped. And he says, I found myself in a dark wilderness. Right? By the time we realize we've been slipping, we've slipped quite a ways. We don't discern our slow drifting. We slide into some blindness, some sin, some compromise. So he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He goes on to describe his specific struggle. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He goes on in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through the fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Wow, what a picture. They go from rich to richer, we might say today. He says they're all healthy and fat in a, in a time where wealth meant calories. In, in our day, we might say they're all healthy and thin because they can afford personal trainers and chefs and Botox and all that. They live however they like. They don't get sick. They're not troubled like the rest of us. Their cars don't break down. They don't have little annoyances and demands in life. They, they seem to scoff and belittle. They brag. They defy God. And according to verse 10, they, 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 they're applauded for it. They're, they're held up as paragons in our culture. And, and Asaph, he's had enough. He can't stand it. In verse 11, it says, And they say, speaking of these people, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Their spirituality, if they have any, is trendy and cool. They don't believe in the one true and personal God. In our day and age, it might be people who advocate for spiritual enlightenment through the use of psychedelics and other mind-altering substances and practices, dabbling in Eastern mysticism, discovering that God is inside each and every one of us. God is you. You are God. If only you could realize it. In verse 12, Asaph summarizes his view of these people. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. He's bitter. Now we're nearing the bottom of our spiral. In verses 13 and 14, we see Asaph at his lowest point. What does he say? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's all been pointless, he's saying. What good has all my diligence and obedience done for me? 
Here I am trying so hard to live a good life and be pleasing to God, and I seem to hit every bump on the road, some of them twice. So one step forward and two steps back for me, while the people who couldn't care less about God just soar on their trouble-free lives. He seems almost ready to walk away from the whole thing. But it's almost as if something about his own words shocks him out of this line of thinking. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you're in an intense conversation or an argument, and you say something, and you kind of shock yourself by what you said. Gosh, I didn't know I really felt that way, but now that I've said it, yeah, that's how I feel. It's true. What comes out of Asaph in this moment of unguarded honesty reveals that he had gone astray in a very key point. Yahweh, the covenant God, was his God on paper. But what controlled his heart and emotions, what bothered him to his very core, was that God was not giving him the life he felt he deserved, especially compared to the life of the godless. Look at what he says. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What a fascinating phrase. I want to ask him, Asaph, in vain? If he feels it was in vain, let's just think through this logically, it's because he expected some outcome from his behavior and didn't get it. Therefore, his efforts were in vain. Which really begs the question, what was motivating you to keep your heart clean and wash your hands in innocence? Why were you doing those things? The truth, it seems, is that Asaph wanted the pleasures and comforts of prominence and prosperity and was counting on his religious goodness to provide it for him. And how do we know this? Because... When he didn't get them, and the wicked did, he was completely undone. He wasn't just a little bothered or annoyed. He felt the ground crumbling from underneath his feet, like his whole conception of the way the universe was supposed to work was falling apart. His reaction to his circumstances revealed what he was really living for, what he was worshiping, we might say. God brought about a situation that would reveal his heart to him. Brothers and sisters, this is often the way God does it in our own lives. He brings about situations that elicit reactions from us which reveal the state of our hearts. Now, I've been pretty hard on Asaph so far. Am I saying he was a complete fraud, a phony, a hypocrite through and through? No, I'm saying he was like me. He was like us, every believer, who's committed to the one true God, but often tempted and sometimes stumbling into worshiping and living for the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. Can you relate to that? I can. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, does God owe you a good life? Why are you coming to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you give? If in this next week your life were to take some tragic and unexpected twist, 
I know you'll feel sad, devastated even, but would you feel cheated? Would you feel betrayed by God? That might be a, a flag, but there's something a little off. Have you fallen into the trap of trying to place God in your debt by your piety and good deeds, by your prayers and service? And this is something that any one of us can fall into, including pastors and elders. So does God owe you a good life, a spouse, obedient and successful children, a good paying job, freedom from false accusations? The list can go on and on. All of these are good things. In fact, they're good gifts that God delights to give to his children. But do we want them more than we want God himself? And that is the question this psalm really gets to. Another way is to, is, is to ask, uh, what kinds of things in my life make me lose my balance, my footing? What is there in your life that when it's threatened, you have something like an ex existential crisis? That kind of reaction is what I'm talking about. It reveals that something is very close to your central core identity. It's being threatened. And it's easier to see this in others than in ourselves, if we're honest. I remember when I first started dating Caitlin, I fixed it firmly in my heart that I was going to be the kind of man who treasured his spouse. And I, I, you know, I had been taking in a lot of this like godly manhood uh, teaching, and I just, it was so important to me. And I remember thinking, I never want... I never want to, to treat her in such a way that she breaks down in tears and pain. So, fast forward a little while. When I inevitably did something selfish and mean-hearted, and she was hurt, and she called me on it, I had a kind of identity crisis. Because in this area of my life, I had made it about me. I wanted to think of myself as the kind of person who would never do that. And then when... It turned out I did. I couldn't handle it. it. Took some time to work through that. We also see this, I'll just mention this quickly, but we can see this in all the identity issues plaguing young people today in our culture. Right? Rather than identities rooted like in past generations in, in family and community and nation or religion, uh, we seem to be in a situation now where young people are expected to construct their own identities, this fragile collage of different things. They have this gender identity and sexual orientation and this little sub-community that they're a part of. And if those things are challenged or if they're pointed out as self-contradictory or anything, it's like you're threatening to erase their existence. There's a fragility there and there's like, you can't take this away from me. Perhaps that's not the right basis for our identity. So this psalm serves like an x-ray for our hearts. What are we really living for? Here at the end of verse 14. Have we read it? Verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I don't really know if this is a real reflection of what's going on in his life or if it's just a bit of a pity party. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, when I read it, I, I, could, I could read it either way. But what is sure is that this is rock bottom for Asaph. 
But at this point, a shaft of light begins to break into his gloomy heart. So let's look at verse 15 together. He says something very interesting here. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So remember, he is one of the the worship leaders of Israel. And he's saying, if I had spoken about all this at this point, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's realizing that he has a responsibility as a leader to work through this in a way that doesn't lead a whole bunch of people who are looking to him into a dark place with him. And there's a tension here, isn't there? Because we want our leaders to be transparent. We want them to be real. And yet, it's possible to air out too much dirty laundry and, and, and just lead people actually down with you uh, into a dark place, which is not what leadership is meant to be or to do. But what's, no, what's important to notice is that for the first time in this psalm, he has a concern for someone other than himself. He's thinking about the people he leads. And he's realizing that it's not just about him. Now, it's very hard to see this kind of self-centeredness in ourselves, isn't it? But sin at its very core is this self-centeredness, this self-focus, this default orientation towards the self. Sin is a kind of reorientation of the entire universe so that it revolves around the great center of me. Asaph becomes conscious of his responsibility to others and he recognizes it would not be wise to lay everything out at this point. So he says to himself, if we keep reading, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Very interesting. He says to himself, I got to figure this out. I got to get myself uh, back on track, but I, I, I can't do it myself. I need help. Maybe I should go to the sanctuary of God. Maybe I should go to where God's people are, where they gather. And it was there, we read in verse 17, that he started to have his world reoriented. During public worship, that the light started to dawn. Right? He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It was during public worship that he was able to see these things from the perspective of eternity and a God-centered perspective. And I think it's worth pointing out that going to a biblical church is like a reality check because modern life is a kind of illusion. It's the ridiculous notion that man can live without any ultimate meaning, any ultimate reference point or any transcendent reality to uphold everything. Modern society tells us that we can define ourselves, right? Just decide who you are. That this world is all there is, and that, in fact, we are on the right side of history, we are the most morally enlightened generation out of all the previous generations, and that there is no such thing as sin against a holy God or a righteous law. 
Our world tells us that a guilty conscience is caused by the stigma that society places on certain things, not because the image of God in us is testifying to our guilt. Friends, these are lies that we breathe in all week long. They're shot through with godless assumptions that seep into our minds through everything around us. News, entertainment, conversations, the ubiquitous marketing that is always assailing our eyes and ears. And so going to a biblical church is a way to break through all of that and be reminded once again of how things really are. And it's just part of God's wisdom that spread out all over this nation and all over this world, there are little churches that are not usually the most prominent thing in a city, and yet these are the pillars of the truth. This is where, in some mysterious way, in a motley crew of weak and struggling believers, uh, we encounter the truth in God's word. That's how God works, through, through little places like this. So Asaph is reminded of the truth when he goes to God's people. He realizes that the people he has been envying will slip into ruin. We see this in the next verses. Verses 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So he looks back and he reflects on all of this in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow. That's good. That's good poetry right there. He's looking back on how he was feeling and how he was acting and how he was thinking, the, the mental patterns he was stuck in. And he's saying, I was like an ignorant beast. God, I've been such a fool. Right? The fog is starting to clear. Sanity is returning. I'm starting to see things rightly again. And this is actually the first time that Asaph addresses God directly. At first, he could only see that his sin was affecting himself, right? The whole first part of the psalm, he didn't have any idea or, or uh, concern for anyone else. Then he starts to think about the people he's meant to lead. And now, lastly, as he's coming truly to, to, to see things rightly, he's realizing that he was like a beast before God himself. He's now realizing that his sin was against God first and foremost. Sin really is a form of insanity. It blinds us to seeing the world as it really is. David Polison says this, the, the core insanity of the human heart is that we violate the first great commandment. We will love anything except God unless our madness is checked by grace. That little phrase, I was like a beast before you, I don't know, 
it's always stuck with me. It's served me well. I've incorporated it into my own repenting. It reminds me of another psalmist, David, and his behavior in the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah. I trust you know the story. He was gripped by lust and gave into it. She became pregnant, which was, if anything, we could say it was a wake-up call and a gracious opportunity for him to repent and confess, but he is still only thinking of how to cover his tracks. He's still caught in the blindness of sin. He's driven by this selfish impulse to a dark place. And we know the rest of the story, and he has to be confronted. Some of you have been to that dark place, and maybe you find yourself there now. David was automatically justifying his sin. He didn't have to think about it, right? It's like he's caught in this situation. Opportunities to repent come forward. And it's like there's, there's no computing. It's just automatically responding with more sin, more lies, and more diverting of the truth. And that's the human heart. That's what we're like when we're really caught in something. Augustine, the great church father, said more than 1,500 years ago that sin curves us in on ourselves. And so our eyes can only see what concerns us, and we are blind. So I want you to note the link between Asaph's return to sanity and a proper orientation towards God. Right? David writes in Psalm 51, Against you only have I sinned. David moved from how can I cover my tracks to how could I have treated God like this. Earlier I said that sin is a kind of self-centeredness, a self-focus, right? an orientation of the universe around myself. But the Bible is relentlessly God-centered. And it models time after time the repentance that reorients a person back into right relationship with God, which is to say, with God at the center of life. And this reminds me of my Old Testament class in first year of Bible college with Dr. Barker, giving us lectures about the Old Testament and the Psalms. And Peter, I don't know if you were in my class or not, but I remember vividly one day. Um, so just imagine this fiery professor. He's kind of yelling at us, very animated. You know, we're a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds there sitting in class, and he's going at us, and he draws a big circle on, 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 the, on the board, and he puts a little circle inside it, and he says, this is your world, and this little circle inside, he writes, me. And that's you. You've got yourself at the center, and that's the biggest problem you have in your life. And we're all there. And I remember being like a little bit shocked, a little bit offended. Like, hey, like, we're Bible college students, you know? Like, we're here to serve the Lord and everything. And uh, I feel like it's a little bit harsh. <laughs> but he was exactly right. And no matter who you are, walking with Christ is a process, a lifelong process of learning to put God back at the center of your world. 
and take yourself out of it. Because the number of ways that we consciously and unconsciously live with ourselves at the center, unfortunately, is endless. But now let's turn to a passage that reveals this beautiful reorientation with God at the center about as beautifully and gloriously as any other in the whole Bible. So verse 23. Why don't we just read a few verses here? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is glorious. I call this section desiring and delighting in God alone. It's just a wonderful celebration of God's presence, guidance, and all-satisfying glory. You know, what, a, what a shocking and, and, and remarkable contrast to see Asaph in this place compared to where we found him in verses 13 and 14. He says, I'm continually with you. He's aware of God's presence with him. And this comes, I think, by no mistake, just after his confession of how sinful and foolish he had been. Do you guys see that connection? It's important. Realizing and, and, and being honest about our sin is the doorway to experiencing God's intimate presence. Because when we're honest about our sin, and we know and see God is holy and glorious, it humbles us, and God is with the lowly. So God's presence here is grace, and he understands that to be the case. He's, he's marveling at God's gracious presence with him. See, God's presence is with us not because we have no sin, but because we have confessed it. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, to quote David again from Psalm 51. When we admit to the darkness of our sin, grace shines all the brighter. God's presence is all the sweeter, and the cross is all the more precious. And this, just as an aside, this is why it's a cruel thing for a church to stop speaking of sin. I know this is not a danger here, you have good leadership, but... Our world really wants us to stop talking about sin. Don't do that. It makes people feel bad when you tell them they have sinned. And I understand that. And I think we can be sensitive to that. But like I said, understanding, it's not like we have a choice. We don't get to decide what's in here. We are sinful. We need a Savior. That's the doorway to joy and salvation. Jesus didn't die for negative thinking. He didn't die for bad habits, for pathologies and insecurities, dysfunctions and mistakes. And those are all useful categories at different times and places, but he died for sin. He died for rebellion and transgression against himself and his holy law and his character. 
He died to pay its penalty to absorb the righteous wrath of God the Father against it and to destroy its power in our lives. And if you look at the churches who over the last hundred years or so have made that choice to say, we can't continue to speak to a culture that doesn't believe in this anymore if we see, you know, keep talking about sin. And you know, we've, we've gotten to watch what happens to a church when it makes that decision and goes down that path. And those churches, a hundred years later, they're, they're empty. Right? And the few that are left, they can't even sing the great hymns of the faith because they don't believe them anymore. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, well, we don't believe in wretches anymore. We can't sing that. There's no one singing, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Well, we can't believe that God the Father asked God the Son to die. That's not, that's not a healthy family. So. so there's always a few people arguing that the church needs to change its message or it will die. The church does need reformation and revival, yes. But the message is not the problem, friends. Right? We need the Spirit to take this message and apply it to our hearts and, and, and revive us. So we see what happens when you do that. You go from having good news to good advice. Then finally you're just sprinkling a bit of vague spirituality over the advice the world already gives itself. And then nobody can figure out why they should wake up on a snowy Sunday morning and come listen to that. But we have the living word of God and it is not powerless and so there's very good reasons to wake up on a Sunday morning and come and have our worlds reoriented by God's truth verse 25 whom have I in heaven but you there is nothing on earth I desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever so this is the apex the mountaintop of the psalm in some ways, this is one of the mountaintops of biblical spirituality in the whole Bible. This is a, a, a snapshot of the human heart when it's captured by God's beauty and glory. And so we want to aspire to this. I'd like you to notice that his circumstances have not changed. The wicked have not been brought low. He has not been brought high. He's just seeing things rightly. He knows that God will judge the wicked and they'll be consumed in a moment. And he knows that he'll be with God forever. And that has changed everything. So this beautiful, glorious passage, it's not the prayer that comes out when the trials are over. It's the prayer that pours out when God comes into our suffering and reorients our hearts and lives. Some of you perhaps are in the depths of profound suffering or in the grip of a sin, perhaps in a way that's hidden. Would you invite God into that situation this morning? But not on your own terms, not with caveats and exceptions, but invite Him as God, Lord of Lords, to come into whatever mess that is and let him be at the center of it and delight in who he is. 
Notice also that this idea of, of God alone. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. This, this idea of, of everything else I just put aside and God is the highest thing. This is something that we find throughout Scripture. And you'll know some of these passages. Uh, we find the same sentiment in the words of Paul in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. We find it in the disciples when, um, after many had stopped following Jesus because of hard teaching, Jesus turns to them, he asks them, he says, are you going to leave also? And what do they say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We find it in the Psalms, Psalm 16 too. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Is that true? There's, we have all kinds of goods in our lives. But in comparison, it's as if they were nothing in comparison. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So this idea, it's like a repeating chorus of biblical spirituality, desiring and delighting in God alone. Have you had this experience, brothers and sisters? I, I trust you have, and if you have not, if you have not, ask. Ask and seek with all your heart. I can remember one poignant experience I had, and I'll, I'll just try and tell this briefly. I have no idea what time it is or how long I've been going. But, um, so my apologies, but you don't have to listen to me again. So, um, <laughs> so when I was about 20 years old, I played some music, and a young lady in our church entered a contest for writing a Christian song. And she asked me to play guitar, so sure. Um, but it, it, the contest was downtown Montreal at Place des Arts, which is kind of like the hoity-toity like, concert hall in Montreal. Uh, not the big room. They had like a smaller room that they were doing the contest in. But there was, you know, bands and teams from all over the area who were coming to do this. And so, I mean, I'd never done anything like this before. But I go there. We, you know, we had practiced. We did our song. The stage, you know, uh, the stage is bright. The seats are dark. Um, there's all kinds of people. And we do our thing. And then, you know, they're clapping after and everything. And it's kind of a surreal experience of being on the big stage. And then I take, this, I take the, the metro, we call it the metro in Montreal, the subway, uh, back, back to where I had parked my car. I start walking towards my car. It's dark at night now. Everything is quiet. And it starts to rain. So I'm just walking in the dark, in the rain, with my guitar, to my car, and I'm just thinking, you know, some people live their whole lives for that feeling of being on the stage and people clapping. You know, you're good, you're enough, we love you, we admire you. And at that point in my life, I had come to Christ about a year before, and I was still in that mountaintop experience of, of discovering God. And I thought to myself, I've got Christ. And I'm walking home in the rain, in the dark, by myself. And I, thought, this, I, I have more than enough. I don't need all of that. 
And it was just kind of this beautiful crystallizing moment of knowing that everyone who lives for that is going to find themselves later that night alone in the dark in a hotel room or wherever. The clapping has to end. And what are you left with at the end of all that? So it's kind of a touch point for me. I look back on it. God made something clear to me in that moment that he's more than those things can ever offer. Well, we have to wrap things up here. This passage and the others that we read, you know, they capture the heart of the gospel, that the greatest gift God ever offers us is himself. Through Christ's sacrifice, we enter into union with God. Amen. We're forgiven all our sins, but that is all to give us God the Father. He is the gift in Christ through the Spirit. He is the gift that alone can satisfy and fill the soul to overflowing. And so this this passage reveals what a heart transformed by the gospel looks like. It desires and delights in God alone. So what was the question we started with? Is God really good to those who are pure in heart? Well, this passage answers that question. Asaph struggled as long as he looked to anything in creation to satisfy him. As long as he defined God being good to him as God giving him the gifts that he wanted, pleasure, ease, comfort, prosperity, whatever it is, he struggled when he measured God's goodness to him in those categories. And this is a universal human tendency, right? Romans 1 says that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So this is kind of the default of the human heart. And what these passages all reveal is that the antidote to this idolatry, which is what it is. It's letting God be God and find that he is better than all of his good gifts. So the last verse. Well, I guess we didn't read verse 27. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So he's, he's seeing things rightly. And then lastly, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So we see here, Asaph has come around full circle. God is good to us because God is his greatest good to be with him. He's made the Lord his refuge. That I may tell of all your works, he's ready to minister again. His soul struggle is settled. For us, in the new covenant, all of this is ours through Christ and what he's done for us. And so I trust this will inform our taking of the Lord's Supper today. Thank you for listening. And God bless you.